The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the Son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. This week, our story starts in Danvers, Massachusetts. Danvers which was once part of Salem, known as Salem Village, before that part of Salem was renamed Danvers in the 1800s. Yes, the Salem Village from the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. We actually have an episode on the Salem Witch Trials page covered in the fall of 2020. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. Yeah, go check it out. So in Danvers, the Rebecca Nurse Homestead which belonged to one of the accused, is actually still standing and can be visited um, as one of the historical landmarks that they have there marking the witch trials. 60 years after those trials in 1752, Salem Village was renamed Danvers. I know I accidentally said 1800s. I meant 1700s earlier. It was renamed for one of the settlers, Danvers Osborne. It was officially incorporated as the town of Danvers in 1757. So this area of Salem and Danvers, it's about 30 minutes or so outside of Boston. So it's basically a Boston suburb. It is a bit of a smaller town. It's home to about 25 to 30,000 residents. It has five elementary schools, one junior high, and one high school by the name of Danvers High School. This I just want to use to kind of give context of what kind of community this is. I actually grew up in a really similarly sized town, as did Natalie, um, where, you know, you've got a school district where everybody at least comes together by like junior high, Mm -hmm. high school. And everybody kind of knows everybody because of that. It's not the smallest town, but it's still pretty darn small. Yeah, there are plenty of of familiar faces. Exactly. Anyways, Danvers High School, again, the only high school in town, was what Colleen Ritzer, a math teacher there, called work. She primarily taught geometry and algebra there. And this school or workplace, should we say, would also become the last place Colleen ever saw. This is her story the murder of Colleen Ritzer. Colleen was born May 13th, 1989 in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and she grew up in nearby Andover. Both of these towns are about 30 minutes from Danvers. They're neighboring towns. So I'm not sure exactly where her home was located in that general area between being born in Lawrence and being said to grow up in Andover. However, what we do know is that she 
graduated from Andover High School in 2007. So growing up in that area, that's where that led her to in 2007. After she graduated, she attended Assumption College, which is now known as Assumption University. Fun fact is that Assumption College just received university-level status by the state of Massachusetts, or as they like to say, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, in 2020. So it is now known as a university. At Assumption College, she graduated magna cum laude, which means that she graduated with a 3.75 GPA or higher on a 4.0 scale. For our international listeners, we're here in the U.S., a 4.0 scale is pretty much the highest scale you're going to get. It's basically all A's, which is the highest mark you can get. So 3.75 is almost all highest marks that you can get, maybe a B sprinkled in there. Yeah. Very, very good GPA. The bachelor's that she received with that high GPA was in math. She also had a minor in psychology. She also included a concentration within her math degree that was available to her, which was secondary education. So essentially, she did prep for teaching math and threw in a psych minor. It sounds like she went in knowing she wanted to be a teacher and thought, how am I going to benefit or um, teach my students in the best way possible? And she kind of went and did all of those things. Absolutely. Psychology can often be linked with those helping professions, right? And teaching is public service. So she knew she loved math. She knew she wanted to teach. And absolutely, she wanted to make sure that she could understand and reach students from all different perspectives, which is a wonderful thing. And you're absolutely correct in that in many of the resources, it is mentioned that Colleen always knew she wanted to be a teacher. And this was just her fulfilling that dream. In the words of her obituary, Colleen adored spending time with her family. She was an amazing daughter and a big sister. She loved attending family gatherings and parties, no matter the location, as long as it meant she was spending as much time with her family as possible. So she was super family-oriented. She was always thinking of others first. She loved going to her sister Laura's hockey games Mm -hmm. and made a lasting impression on everyone who attended. She was one of her biggest fans. The love of her family and friends led her to organizing a family team named Footsteps for Bev in memory of her grandmother. Colleen knew she wanted to be a teacher from a very young age and worked diligently to achieve her goal. Even though it was her profession, teaching was one of her favorite hobbies and her passion. She spent countless hours finding unique and creative ways to inspire and teach her students whom she loved. In addition, she always enjoyed vacationing, cruising, shopping, and making collages. She had many friends that she loved dearly. She always had a smile on her face and loved being in pictures no matter what mood she was in. So that, again, straight from her obituary. She truly sounds like someone with such an empathetic soul, a true giver, and it sucks that it has to be, well, that something horrible and horrific would happen to anyone, but just someone who wanted to make a good, positive impact in the world. It's such an absolute loss to their community and, you know what? Yeah, the world. It's, she's an absolute loss. She was an asset. Now, I, we normally don't talk about our recording process as, as um, you know, we're recording and we release these episodes. But I can tell this is a story that's really touching you deep and getting you worked up. I, you know, I can see these tears in your eyes and I just, 
want to emphasize for our listeners how real these stories are. You know, these are real people with real lives and uh, they met a tragic end. And I think Colleen was just a, a very perfect example of one of the great people this world had. Okay, you're totally making me want to cry even more. Oh, that was not my but, intention. Um, I know it's it's a good thing because it's more just tears of the beauty that she was and connecting on an educator level. I know as a fellow educator who has taught and who has counseled students what it what it takes to do that and what kind of person she really was. So um, and we grew up similarly. So I really connect. And I think that that is something I look to, to really with all of our victims is find where that human connection is, let mm-hmm. their story shine, of course. But when I'm sitting and researching and really getting the pinpoint of the perspective in the story that I want our podcast to come from and what I think they would want their story to sound like, those are all of the things I take into account. Mm-hmm. Back to Colleen's story here, she began working at Hale Middle School in Stowe, Massachusetts after she graduated from Assumption. She worked there just for one year before she started her position at Danvers High School in September of 2012. She quickly gained a really positive reputation with students and staff alike, despite being new to the faculty body at the high school. One student is quoted as saying, in the two short months I've had Miss Ritzer as a teacher, there are two things I learned. Math is as good as you make it, and being nice to people can leave a greater impact on their life than you think. This quote really shows that Colleen really wanted to make a difference in her students' lives, and I know we've been talking about this as our story has been unfolding But she had always wanted to be a teacher, like we mentioned, and she truly was living her dream and making that difference. Her Twitter bio is super cute. It's math teacher, often too excited about the topics I'm teaching. Love it. And her Twitter feed is adorable. I mean, she has Mean Girl references, Pretty Little Liars references. She's a true millennial, you know, reaching into my millennial heart and getting all of our favorite shows, movies, um and using them to teach her students. I can so picture her up at the front of the classroom, teaching out of her whiteboard, her projector, whatever, and just getting so excited about some mundane math thing and just like making it more fun for her students because she really did think it was cool or important for them to learn. And going back to Twitter, her feed is still up. It's at Miss Ritzer Math, R-I-T-Z-E-R. The link is also going to be in the show notes. And I'll include a screenshot in the Instagram post this week. So check it out. Definitely do that. We've learned a lot about who Colleen was and what those around her felt about her. Now let's talk about the unfortunate events of October 22nd, 2013. So picture it, Natalie. It's Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Salem, if you will, nonetheless. Danvers. Fall is in the air. It's a new school year, but the semester is settled in by now, Mm -hmm. and it's just a beautiful time. Colleen plans her normal day. She's going to teach her five or six classes that she had, and 
then she was going to stay after school so that if students needed help with something for an upcoming test that they could stay behind or if they needed help on homework, whatever, she was going to be there to be able to assist them. Most students got out around 155, mm-hmm. but teachers may be there until about 240 if a student was participating in what was they call like an extended block. I was kind of checking out their schedule, a little hard to understand, but regardless, Colleen and other teachers were there after school that day. Only two students showed up for that help that day. And it actually seemed like they weren't necessarily there to need help. One girl, according to one of Colleen's teacher friends, was there just to draw on the board. And then another student, a male student, was there by the name of Philip Chisholm. And Colleen didn't seem to really understand exactly what he was there for. And this is actually straight from the testimony of her teacher friend, Sarah, who she was actually speaking with that afternoon during this period after school where the two students were in Colleen's classroom. It's another example of how comfortable students were with her and, you know, being in her classroom, in her presence. They had good enough rapport to go in her classroom and draw on the whiteboard, you know, after after school. And that says a lot for a teenager to want to be around an adult. Like, you know, you've got some kind of emotional in and connection with them if they want to be around you when you're an adult. And she probably feels more like closer to a peer than, you know, maybe some of the other teachers because she's around 23 years old at this time. It's 2012. She was born in 89. So, I mean, yeah, probably feels like an older sister, a smart older sister or something. Right. We're in 2013 now. So this is actually her second school year. But calendar year wise, she'd been teaching there for about a year by now. Mm -hmm. School calendar wise, this was her second year teaching. So definitely what you're saying makes sense, though. And the students were there hanging out and she had a safe space for them to be. A lot of times, and any of our teachers that are listening know this, during lunch, during break, periods, during free periods, during time after school, oftentimes students will kind of come to your classroom and chat you up a little bit and just kind of biding time for who knows what, whatever reason they don't want to go home and not everybody has that safe space. So she was going to be that safe space for them on this day. And she didn't really care if they weren't presenting something they needed help on. So she tells her friend and fellow math colleague, Sarah, that yeah, you know, she's just drawing on the board. And then he, I'm not too sure why he's here. This stuck with Sarah, but the afternoon went on. Mm -hmm. Colleen and Sarah go back to their respective classrooms. They had taken their conversation out into the hallway for a little bit of privacy since there were students in the classroom. And then just a few minutes later, Colleen is seen coming back out of her classroom and is walking towards the bathroom. Now, this school had a lot of cameras. It had a really large CCTV system. So this is how we know when and what she was doing. These are Colleen's last moments seen alive. Now, Colleen still lived with her parents. She was currently working on a master's degree in education with an emphasis in school counseling. Now, I have a similar degree and I lived with my parents when I was working on this too. She was working on hers at Salem State and, again, was living with her parents, but working towards moving out sooner than later and making her own way in the world within her educational career. So, as we know, most teachers are going to be home, you know, three, four, five, six o'clock at night, depending on how much work they stay after to do. 
or what other obligations, but she never showed. Her parents really started to worry. And her dad started making phone calls. I'm sure her mom was too. Her dad also maybe drove to the school, as did another colleague, and her car was there. It was a normal condition. And, you know, it's said that he checked the tires just to make sure, like, is this something she's dealing with? Is her car not working? But it seemed to be in normal condition. I'm not too sure about that situation, but it is mentioned um, that people rode to the school to see if they could locate her and they found her car. That's probably around the time they start panicking too. At least I can imagine they're thinking, all right, well, our daughter's not home. Granted, she's an adult, but um, they seem to have had a close relationship. She lives with them. So she you know, probably told them what her day looked like. And they go to the school, find her car and realize she hasn't left. So where is she? Yeah, they got worried really quickly and they called the police and reported her missing. Colleen wasn't the only one missing from Danvers High School that day, however. Someone else was missing too. That someone was a 14-year-old student named Philip Chisholm. Yes, the same one that was in her classroom that day. They found out he was missing because he was absent, unexcused, from his soccer practice. Philip was a newer student. He had just transferred in from Tennessee earlier that semester. He had yet to make friends, or very many friends, I should say, and no one really knew him that well, or at least not well enough to be worried about where he was or thinking that they should know where he was from the school. Even the guys on the soccer team that he presumably was spending frequent time with, nobody really thought, oh, I should know where he is and he's not here. This is weird. Let me call him. Like nobody was really thinking that. Philip's mom was really worried though. And she, once she found this out, reported him missing. That happened at about 6.34 p.m. The search was on for Philip. All staff and faculty were notified around 9 p.m. by the principal that they had a missing student. And any information would be helpful or be on the lookout. Just, you know, that sort of message of, hey, we've got a missing student. Did they know that Colleen was missing as well? Or what's happening there? Great question. In response to the call for the search on Philip, a fellow math teacher notified the principal upon receiving the message that Colleen was missing too. They expressed a lot of concern because they reminded the principal that hey, Colleen's missing and she's his teacher. And by the way, I saw him with her at the after-school session. Now, I mentioned that she was talking to her colleague, Sarah, in the hallway and that she had seen that Philip was in the classroom after school. We don't have confirmation that that email response was from her. Yes, it could have been because she did have that information, but we don't know. And I just want to clarify for listeners that we can't really say whether or not it was her. With that, the principal's now getting the information that Colleen and Philip had been together at the extra help after school session and had been seen inside her classroom during that time period. Now we have the information that they were together at some point that day and mm. are now both missing. So they decide, let's trace Philip's phone. It should be said that 
Philip wasn't all that happy with the move to Danvers. This goes a little bit unsaid that a lot of teenagers may have difficulty with a big move like that across state lines during this time in their life. So he was no exception. He wasn't that happy. With this information, investigators are starting to think, okay, we have two missing individuals, a teacher and an unhappy student. Did Philip just run away on his own? This is a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Did they go off together? Did something unfortunate happen to both of them? There were just a lot of questions and a lot of different ways this could have been going for the investigators. A lot of possibilities and too many ways to have to investigate. Yeah. And they start at the school because that's the last place that either of them were last seen, right? So they start searching the school. And when they make their way to the women's restroom, they see what look like bloody smears. And then they think, okay, we better start looking broader. And they look around the perimeter of the school. That's when they find Colleen's purse. What condition is it in? I mean, uh, is that all that's there? What's going on with that piece of evidence? Well, they're happy they found a piece of evidence, but it's empty. There's no wallet. There's literally nothing inside of this purse. It's just the purse. Okay. Unusual. Yeah. It is a clue, but it's not given them much. Mm -hmm. Not just yet. They keep the search going. And finally, around 3 a.m., they find Colleen's body under a pile of leaves. She was naked from the waist down and covered in blood, scratches, and dirt. Her neck area specifically showed a large amount of trauma and her throat had been slit. Next to her body, they found a handwritten note. And this note said, I hate you all. They also find near the body a recycling bin with bloody gloves. Didn't take long for investigators to put two and two together that Philip may have had something to do with her murder because... Not long before they found her body at 3 a.m., at 12.30 a.m., police received a call that a pedestrian was walking down the street and he just looked a little suspicious, maybe, or something's going on. This is a weird time for somebody mm-hmm. to be walking down my street. Police respond to the call and they identify the pedestrian as Philip Chisholm, the boy who had been reported missing, the one who had been in our classroom, right. the one we've been talking about all along. The responding officers searched him, of course, and they discovered a bloody box cutter that was on his person. And when he's asked where the blood came from, he replies, the girl. Police also found on Philip Colleen's credit cards, driver's license, and a pair of women's underwear, presumably Colleen's. When Colleen went to the bathroom that day, Philip followed shortly behind her. This is all seen on the CCTV footage that we've also been mentioning. You see on the camera that he puts his hood up and eventually puts gloves on. He can also be seen entering the bathroom. Now, some of you may be thinking, why the heck is there a camera in a women's bathroom? That's creepy. Well, this camera is definitely there for security and it's only pointing at a sink and like a corner that is right after the entry. So the entry is off camera to the right of your eyes. So as students come in, you can see them come in, wash their hands or to an off camera stall. So there's no stalls or anything that are on camera. So don't worry too much. But yes, there's a camera in there and you can see who's coming and going. And thank goodness for it too. In this case, absolutely. 
after they were both in the restroom for about 11 minutes, you see another student come in and leave promptly. Now, this student says that she left so quickly because she noticed an exposed foot and wanted to get out of there. She thought that something funky was going on. Maybe somebody was changing. Maybe there was some kind of sexual engagement going Mm -hmm. on. Maybe something else awkward was going on. She's a young kid. She wanted out of the bathroom. She books it. Just after she leaves, you can then see that Philip goes ahead after feeling a little interrupted, if you will, and is seen leaving the bathroom as well. He's wearing a blue sweater and jeans. The next time he's seen on camera, not too long after, he's walking away from the bathroom toward the classroom wearing a red sweater over a white t-shirt. He's sort of also seen on different camera footage running around in the white t-shirt. At 3.14, which is about nine minutes after he had left from being interrupted by the female student I was mentioning, he can be seen wheeling a recycling bin toward and into the bathroom. This time he has a black mask on once he's in the bathroom. All this feels very premeditated. The box cutter, the hood, the gloves. I mean, I'm getting very creepy vibes from this kid. It's Definitely funky that he would have a box cutter and a change of clothes, a mask and gloves just on him for the day. Mm -hmm. So I'm with you. This event seems very premeditated. Back to our timeline. You see him wheel the bin out of the bathroom, across the halls and the campus and into the woods where the bin and Colleen's body were later found. A few people even saw him while he was wheeling the bin, but they didn't really know what to do with the information. It was one of the cross-country runners that had seen him, and you see him pass this guy with a dog and like a cell phone or something Mm -hmm. like that, where he's just kind of too distracted. And also, who's thinking, oh, this kid is wheeling a bin with a mask on because he murdered a teacher. No, that's not the first thing you think. First thing you think probably for a teenager. And this is what the prosecutor was kind of getting at in some of her footage that you can find on YouTube. She's basically saying the first thing you think of is, is that what kids are doing these these days? Is that what kids are wearing? Is this the latest trend? Is this the latest prank? Like, what is this? You don't think too much of it, especially when you feel like you're in a safe small town. You're not Mm going to question what they're doing. Philip returns barefoot 25 minutes after wheeling the bin into the woods. So you see him wheel the bin into the woods, all that jazz. And then he comes back on the school campus near the crime scene barefoot 25 minutes later. He then changes into all black clothing and he leaves. He leaves to probably go to the theater where his phone pings. At this theater, he saw either Blue Jasmine or Gravity. Resources say both, so it is in question. Regardless, this is the theater where his phone had pinged. And after that, he went to Wendy's and wandered around until he was found at 1230. So what happened to Colleen? After Philip followed Colleen into the bathroom that day, 
He sexually assaulted her, strangled her, stabbed her a minimum of 16 times, and slit her throat. He then put her inside that bin that he was wheeling around, the recycling trash can bin. In the woods, it's been determined that he assaulted her again with a tree branch or some sort of stick. It's undetermined by a court of law if she was still alive or not at the time of this second assault or the assaults that took place in general in the woods. But the district attorney did present a case that explained that she was likely alive during that last assault and passed away only later due to blood loss, which of course did happen before she was found. This literally makes me want to cry and hide under my covers forever. Yeah, it. I mean, either way, whether she was alive or dead at the time, it's just, it, it's one of those cases where everything just feels like too much to be learning this information. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It really does. It's so much to take in. Mm-hmm. And as most of her cases are, just completely senseless. And bizarre. Philip was 14 years old doing all of that. This is serial killer stuff. How do you go from being a 14-year-old student to assaulting and murdering a teacher? It really makes me put into question what else he could have done before he even got to that point. Right. Like, were there any precursors to this one event? And, um, and I don't think there have been any reported, but it doesn't mean that nothing happened. It just means we just don't have a paper trail of them. Right. There's nothing that's been reported. He had no priors until this event. So back to this case specifically, police interviewed one of Philip's classmates. This happens to be the girl who was there that day. She said that they were both, you know, just with Colleen in the classroom, maybe doing some extra work. Again, she's also been mentioned as drawing on the whiteboard. Mm -hmm. She says that Philip and Colleen got into a conversation and Tennessee was brought up. She noticed, this other student, that this made Philip visibly upset, that it was some kind of trigger for him to talk about Tennessee. Maybe Colleen hadn't noticed that right away, then did eventually notice and change the subject, though, Mm -hmm. but perhaps didn't notice that what was making him upset was Tennessee specifically. So maybe she kept going a little bit, trying to ease the conversation, thinking it wouldn't be such a trigger. But then when she noticed, she did change the subject. I'm not sure what role that little mini event that the other student mentions played in her murder or not, though, because police say, like you were also mentioning, that this crime was so premeditated given that he already had the box cutter, ski mask, gloves, and a change of clothes ready to go on him, including a pair of shoes, including shoes. Remember, he was barefoot and then changed into all black and then the shoes were blue. So... Yeah, he definitely had been planning this for some time. Yeah. Did that event make him go ahead and go for it and he sought his chance when she used the restroom. That's a possibility, but we can't say that this event and the way it's being presented in some of these resources with this case is just so gross in that 
as if that could or should spark a murder. Either way, it's absolutely not a reason for murder. And he had a premeditated notion to murder her or somebody that day or at some time at that school. Because where did he get those items? They were already with him. So that's kind of the the events of October 22nd, 2013. In December, on the 4th of 2013, Philip pleaded not guilty to all charges. His attorney agreed to the prosecutor's request to hold him without bail. Colleen's friends and family filled two whole rows in the courtroom on that day, December 4th, to find out what his plea was going to be. As I mentioned, he was held without bail and while being held at the juvenile facility, remember he was 14 at the time of the attack, he attacked a female staff member in the locker room with a sharpened pencil. Both guard and clinician have been listed as the staff member's duties, so I'm not sure exactly what the staff member's roles were at the juvenile facility. However, we do know that she is a 29-year-old who Chisholm had known for several months while being in the facility. She walked down a hallway to the bathroom, much like Colleen, and this bathroom was inside a staff locker room, according to a statement. Chisholm was being watched, but he watched her walk down that hallway. So he ends up distracting this other guard, if you will, kind of makes a noise of some sort and crouches down and makes his way down the hallway that is a specific staff member hallway. No one being held the way Chisholm is is supposed to be walking down the hallway. Right. And it's so terrifying because he clearly had to have known that he wasn't going to get away with it, but he chose violence and to attack someone just because he had the opportunity. That's what is terrifying to me. It's serial killer stuff. I'm telling you. So he's got this pencil in his hand. He opens the door to the locker room, Uh according to the victim's statement. When she came out of that locker room bathroom, Chisholm was staring at her from about a foot away. Oh, God. He placed both his hands around her neck and began to choke her while pushing her back against a cinder block wall that was in the bathroom. Again, according to her statement, she was unable to scream because his hands were so tightly gripped around her throat. She managed to get his right hand away from her neck. He punches her in the face, head, and jaw. This is according to what prosecutors were saying. She screamed at that point, and other staffers came to her aid and restrained him. It almost makes me wonder if this is the method he used for Colleen. I mean, is this like him replaying that um, specific event and him reenacting it? Or what's going on? I, I, I'm literally um, at a loss for words. There's so much psychology going on here. We can't even begin to do it, even though mm-hmm. I was a psych major. All in all, the victims suffered bruises to her face, jaw, and head, along with a scratch on her back consistent with a tear in her shirt that appears to be from the pencil that I mentioned Philip had. He was charged with attempted murder by strangulation and assault with intent to murder 
kidnapping and two counts of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, the pencil and the cinder block, both being the weapons. Luckily, she was not fatally harmed. But as you mentioned, this totally echoes what happened to Colleen being followed closely behind and assaulted, kind of that that idea of being taken off guard, the bathroom, well, all of that. Even it. just the focus on the neck area. I mean, yes. that was one of the specific things in her autopsy. She clearly endured significant amounts of trauma there. And that's what this guy's done to the woman he attacked in the prison. It's just really frightening when you think about a 24-year-old woman and a 29-year-old woman both being attacked by a 15-year-old. Well, 14, and then by the time of the second attack, he was 15. Mm -hmm. Well, and they're attacked in a a safe space or, you know, somewhere where they should be able to relax. I mean, it's a woman's restroom, specifically for teachers or prison uh, workers. It just goes to show that you can know someone or a place really well. You could have all the safety protocol in place. But there's always that level, that percentage of unknown. Exactly. And he really took advantage of that. That's right. Because he took advantage of these moments and did awful things, he was on trial. And that trial began November 16th, 2015. He was 16 by this point, And he was found guilty of first degree murder, one count of aggravated rape, and armed robbery of Colleen Ritzer. He was found to be not guilty of aggravated unnatural rape. That's referencing the assault with the stick or tree branch I was mentioning earlier. And this unfortunately happened because the jury was not able to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt whether or not Ritzer was alive at the time of the assault. If you ask me, it bugs me that if she was already dead, that it's not considered assault. It's still a body. So does yeah, assault abuse of a stop? Yeah. Is post-mortem assault not assault? This is just funky to me, but the law is weird. And right now, in regards to this case, unfortunately, that's what came to play. Since Chisholm was under 18, he was possibly going to be eligible for parole in as few as 15 years for each crime. And this all had to do with the 2012 Supreme Court case, which was called Miller versus Alabama. However, Philip Chisholm was sentenced on February 26th, 2016. He will serve at least 40 years before he's eligible for parole. He's eligible for parole due to the fact that he was a juvenile at the time of the attack, which is a little annoying, but it's a thing. He received 25 years for the murder charge, and he received 40 years for the rape and the robbery charges. One is 40 years and one day, but essentially they are concurrent charges. So he will be serving 40 years for both of those at the same time, instead of saying 40 years for one, 40 years for the other, 80 years total. He has also received, at the time of sentencing, 857 days of time served already. This net result is what gives him the eligibility to be paroled in 40 years, in which case he'll be in his 50s at that time. Which is still relatively young and is frustrating about him being treated as a minor in this instance. I mean, the level of cruelty. Right, and and receiving the eligibility for parole. I'm with you. Well... 
Colleen's family is adamant that they don't want parole to happen for him. And they want to make sure that it doesn't happen. Her parents in 40 years, of course, will have aged drastically. So her siblings are going to take the fight on. And this is actually something her mom talked about in one of the articles Mm -hmm. that I linked in the show notes. She knows and is already preparing for the future to make sure that this doesn't happen. Now that we've heard all about Philip Chisholm's sentencing, we know he's going to be spending at least 40 years in prison. Let's end the story on some facts about Colleen. Something I thought was so sweet that her mom was talking about in one of the articles is that Colleen was born May 13th, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. In 1989, the year she was born, this happened to be the day before Mother's Day. So Colleen was born the day before Mother's Day. And for that reason, she was seen and felt as a special gift to her mother, especially. Her mom recalls Colleen as a ray of sunshine. Today, thanks to her family, a scholarship for future educators is in Colleen's name, keeping her memory alive. And hopefully with this episode, we can keep Colleen's sunshine bright too. Beautifully put. That's where we will leave it this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries podcast on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com, and at the Murder Diaries podcast.com. And you guys know what I'm going to say, but I'll say it anyway. Go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. It definitely does. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.